Chapter 8, Part 2 of A Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Campaign of 1782, Part 2. We started before sunrise this morning and walked forty-nine miles, when, just before sunset, we overtook our corps. I had eaten nothing all day, but drank several draughts of buttermilk, which I begged of the farmers' ladies on the road. The next day we arrived at a large house near King's Ferry, usually denominated by the army the White House, belonging to Blank Smith, the man who conducted Major Andre on his way towards New York, when he was taken. Our troops stayed here that night, and the next day and night, the officers in the house and the men in the barns. In the evening of the last day we were here, just at dark, one of our officers came and told me that two of the men had deserted and had compelled another man to go with them. As they were all what we called old countrymen, it was conjectured that they had gone to the enemy, and I was accordingly ordered to take nine men, who were then in readiness, and endeavor to overtake them before they could reach New York. I immediately set off, having received my orders, which were, to go to what was called the English neighborhood, and if I could not find them, or hear of them, to return. The English neighborhood was from forty-five to fifty miles distant from the place we were at. We traveled so hard that at daylight I had but three men of the nine left with me, the other six having given out by the way. We were now near our journey's end, when the men with me, beginning to grow slack, and hearing no tiding of the deserters, we concluded to return. When we had got eight or ten miles on our retrograde movement, we met one of our lieutenants on his way to visit his friends who lived in that quarter. He had with him three men for an escort, and had picked up those of my party who had given out by the way. We met him just as he arrived at his father's house, a lucky circumstance for us, as we stopped and got something to eat. He then sent me off alone to a place on the river, where some spy-boats, as they were called, were stationed, with directions to request the officers commanding them to take up the three deserters, should they see them. I executed this commission, and returned to the lieutenant, who then told me to take all the men and return to our corps. The country all about here was infested by Tories, especially a certain district through which I had to pass on my return. The lieutenant charged me not to stop at this place through the night, but to rest short of it, or proceed beyond it. I again set out with my twelve men, little heeding the Tories. It being some time to-night when we arrived to the above-mentioned Tory land, we pushed on and did not stop till we got quite back to Smith's house. We, particularly myself and the three men who held out all night, were tired enough, having travelled about ninety miles in twenty-four hours, and I had travelled five or six miles further than any of them in going to and returning from the spy-boats. We were hungry and tired, but had nothing to eat. I had six or seven dollars in spicy, which one of our corps, an Irishman, had desired me to keep a while for him, to avoid the importunity of his friends, but he was not with us. I, however, ventured to make use of one dollar that evening, and the next morning in purchasing some bread and cheese, and a little something to wet our whistles with. I afterwards paid the man, and he informed me that that dollar did him more good than all the others. I had, the day before this expedition, put on a pair of new shoes, which, not having got fitted to my feet, caused blisters upon them as large as scents. The deserters were, all the time we were in pursuit of them, within three miles of the place where they left us. The man whom they forced off with them made his escape from them soon after and returned. 
He told me that they saw us on our return, that they were then in Haverstraw Mountain, not more than a quarter of a mile from us. Thus I had another useless and fatiguing expedition for nothing. The next morning we set out after our troops, who had gone on for West Point, about eighteen or twenty miles. We found them on the eastern side of the river. Here we got some provisions, and a day or two after crossed over to West Point, where we encamped and worked some time in repairing the fortifications. Toward the latter part of the summer, we went on to Connecticut Island, opposite to West Point, and were employed a while in blasting rocks, for the repair of the works on that side of the river. It was not so dreary at this time as it was when we were there wheeling dirt upon the magazine in 1780. Our duty was not over hard, but the engineers kept us busy. In the month of September, while we lay here, and our tents were pitched about promiscuously, by reason of the ruggedness of the ground, our captain had pitched his marquee in an old gravel pit, at some distance from the tents of the men. One day, two or three of our young hotheads told me that they and some others of the men, whom they mentioned, were about to have some fun with the old man, as they generally called the captain. I inquired what their plans were, and they informed me that they had put some powder into a canteen, and were going to give him a bit of a hoist. I asked them to let me see their apparatus, before they put their project in execution. Accordingly, they soon after showed me a wooden canteen with more, as I judged, than three pounds of gunpowder in it, with a stopper of touchwood for a fuse affixed to it, all they said in prime order. I told them they were crazy, that the powder they had in the canteen would hoist him out of time, but they insisted upon proceeding. It would only frighten him, they said, and that was all they wished to do. It would make him a little more complacent. I then told them that if they persisted in their determination, and would not promise me on the spot to give up their scheme, I would that instant go to the captain and lay the whole affair before him. At length, after endeavouring, without effect, to obtain my consent to try a little under his berth, they concluded to give up the affair altogether. And thus, I verily believe, I saved the old man's life, although I do not think that they meant for anything more than to frighten him. But the men hated him, and did not much care what happened to him. There was a foundation of some barracks which the British had burnt in their excursion up the North River in the year 1777. It was composed of stone and lime, perfectly level, and perhaps a hundred feet long. The bushes had grown up around it, excepting the side next the river. The place formed a very pretty spot for a contemplative evening's walk. The captain used frequently, in fine weather, to be seen pacing backward and forward upon this wall between sunset and dark. The men observed him and itched to discommode him, but, since they had made me privy to their roguery, they dare not play any of their tricks upon him without consulting me, for fear of being discovered. They were therefore applied to me for my consent to cut some caper with him, as they called it. Their plan now was to set an old musket, which they had somewhere obtained, in the manner that hunters set them to kill wild animals, charged only with powder. I consented to let them try this experiment, but, after all, it never took effect. Either the captain discovered it, or it failed by accident, or some other cause, for I never heard anything more about it. I did not wish him to receive any personal injury from their roguery, but I cared very little how much they frightened him. I did not consider myself as being under very heavy obligations to him for his civilities to me, and many of the men considered themselves under still less. One young man, who was the ringleader of this gunpowder plot, 
had a particular grudge against the old man, which urged him on to devise mischief against him. I imagine that he considered himself justified by his conscience in doing so, in consequence of several affronts, as he turned them, which he had received from him. I will mention one or two to which I was knowing, that the reader may be able to form some judgment as to the cause he had to be revenged on the poor old captain. He once purloined a flour-barrel, I think, from the baker, for the purpose of making a washing-tub. The pretended owner complained to the captain, who, apparently, took no notice of it at the time. However, as it appeared not long afterwards, he did not forget it, for this man one morning soon after went off without leave with some others, who had permission, across the mountain to New Windsor, eight or ten miles distant, and did not return till after evening roll-call, at which time he was reported as absent without leave. The sergeant-major, who belonged to our company, chanced that evening to call the roll. He was a sheer sycophant, and would at any time have a man punished, if he could by so doing ingratiate himself with the officers. He therefore, as might be expected, informed the captain of the whole affair. The captain ordered the sergeant-major to send the delinquent to him as soon as he returned, which he accordingly did. The captain used but very little reasoning with him, before he began to use harder arguments than words could convey, urged by the weight of his rattan. After he had satiated his vengeance upon the poor culprit for playing the truant, he told him that the flour-barrel was still to settle for, and then paid him for that, principal and interest. Another affair, in which the captain and he differed in opinion, happened while we were laying at West Point. It was as follows. This man used sometimes to attend on the sergeant's mess, as they were allowed a waiter or cook. He acted as such at the time I mentioned. One morning, after roll-call, we, the sergeants, allowed him, at his own request, to go and work for a farmer in the neighborhood of the camp. He had done so before, and it was quite agreeable to us all, for he received his wages for his work in milk, butter, etc., which he always brought into the mess. On the day mentioned, he was at work at the farmer's pulling flax. The farmer had an orchard close by where our man was at work. The soldiers, as they passed, used often to pillage some of the good man's apples. To prevent these depredations upon his property in some measure, he requested our soldier to take an old musket belonging to the house, loaded with powder only, and when any of the plunderers passed by, to pretend that he was a sentinel, and drive them off. Not content with going thus far, he must put a small blighted apple into his musket for a ball. It was not long before he had an opportunity to exercise his sentryship, for several soldiers came by, and taking the liberty, as usual, to take some fruit, they were ordered off by our hero, and not obeying so soon as he desired, or expected, he fired his apple amongst them, which did not seem to be very agreeable to their feelings. They knew to what corps he belonged by his uniform, and ours was the first they came to on entering the garrison. As the poor fellow's ill luck would have it, the sergeant-major was the first they encountered upon entering. They made bitter complaint against the pretended sentry, and he carried it directly to the captain, without losing a morsel by the way. The captain ordered him to send the man to him as soon as he came home. The captain's marquee had a shade over and round the entrance. I was upon quarters at guard at a tent in the rear of the captain's, when just after roll-call I saw poor Pilgerlick repairing to the captain's tent. I pretty well knew what would be the consequence of his visit. I listened 
heard some discourse between them, but the distance was so great that I could hear but little distinctly, but I soon heard the rattan in motion again, very plainly. As soon as the action was over, the man came to me at the guard. I asked him what the captain and he had been at, as they had, to appearance, been very lively. "'I will tell you,' said he. The sergeant-major had told the captain that I had deserted, but when he found I had not, he sent for me to come to see him, and you could not conceive how glad he was to see me, and nothing would do, but I must dance a jig with him. I told him I had much rather not, as possibly it might injure his character, to be seen dancing with a private soldier. But it would not signify. A jig we must have at all events, and he got hold of my hand, and began to whistle, and I began to dance, and a fine jig I suppose he thought we had. The plague seized his old carcass. I wished he was twisted up fifteen miles above the seven stars, there to remain till every hair of his head was a meteor, and every limb a comet. I could not help laughing at his buffoonery, though I thought if I had been in his place I should not have turned it off so lightly. After we had ended our stone-blasting, we went to building a new range of barracks, and elegant ones too. They were two stories high, with wings at each end brick chimneys, and a gallery in front the whole length of the building, with large flights of steps to ascend to the gallery and the upper room, large enough to accommodate two or three regiments. Levity and Folly are twin sisters, and are restive jades. When they are yoked together in the same vehicle and have indiscretion for a driver, they will very often draw a man into wild and ridiculous scrapes, as I know by experience. They ran me into one about this time, which I will relate as I think it an adventure and a suffering, though a foolish one, such an one as I shall not easily forget, if it should not seem of much consequence to any one but myself. Several of our men, and myself among the rest, by permission of our officers, took a boat one day and went to the western side of the river for the purpose of gathering chestnuts. Two or three miles above West Point is a remarkable mountain, jutting quite into the river, called Butter Hill, from the color of the rocks that compose it, which are of a yellowish hue. The end of the mountain next to the river is almost perpendicular, and in many places quite so. It runs off gradually to the westward, where it is on all sides easy of ascent. Not finding the nuts so plenty as I wished or expected, and being drawn on by the two nags I mentioned above, I took it into my head to leave my associates and climb this mountain where I expected to have a prospect of the country around me that would compensate me for all my trouble in climbing the hill, and then, by going along to the top, I could descend it with ease. My mates tried to dissuade me from the undertaking, but no, I was determined to go, and go I did, a part of the way. I clambered up, sometimes upon my hands and knees, and sometimes pulling myself up by the small bushes that grew in the cliffs of the rocks, passing many places in imminent danger of falling, passing round crags of rocks on the very edges of frightful precipices, not daring to look back, when after I had ascended perhaps five or six hundred feet, and thought I had nearly obtained my object, I arrived at a spot where I was completely graveled, and could go no farther, one way or the other. I then had to stop, of course, and ventured to look back. Being forced to do so, I saw the tall trees below me in the valley, reduced in size to whortleberry bushes. I sat down on a crag of the rock, which was hardly broad enough for me to rest upon, and then began to reflect on my folly. To go farther was impossible. To get down again alive seemed equally so. 
especially when I recollected the many dangerous places I had passed in climbing up, and to call for help was vain, for no one could do aught for me if they were ever so willing. I thought of my more than madness in attempting such a hazardous foolish exploit without any cause for it but my idle curiosity. I recollected the advice of my comrades, and when all these considerations rushing on my mind at once, it almost made me desperate. I had a mind to sit still where I was and starve to death, or throw myself down the rocks and put an end to my life and anxiety together. Had the mountain been all solid gold and I the sole possessor of it, I would at that instant have given every ounce of it to have been in the situation I was but two hours before, but, as the poet says, he had slighted good counsel, had reckoned it cheap, and now the sad fruit of his folly must reap. However, after taking breath a little, for truly I was almost breathless from fatigue, setting aside the danger, I came to the resolution to make a trial to free myself from the preposterous hobble I had so foolishly poked my unthinking skull into for nothing. I could but die if I fell, and I should die if I stayed there. Accordingly, I sat out on my downward passage. Everyone knows, that has had the trial, that it is much easier and safer in ascending than descending such places. I was sensible of this, and therefore took good care, that as much as I wished to be at the bottom of the hill, I did not go down faster than was necessary. By much care, more labor, and abundance of danger, for about an hour, undergoing fear and horror in the extreme, I arrived where I set out from about two hours and a half before. I could hardly stand upon my feet when I reached the foot of the mountain. I looked up the hill with horror and pleasure, horror at the sight and thought of the risk I had run from my life, and pleasure to find myself safe once more on level land. I made myself a promise that nothing but absolute necessity should ever carry me off on such another foolish expedition, so long as I was allowed sense and reason enough to keep myself from running headlong into the fire. Another scrape of a similar complexion I got into about this time, when I ran as great or greater risk of losing my life than I did in the one just related. I have before in this narrative informed the reader of my propensity to gunning whenever I could get an opportunity to indulge myself in it. The mountains on the Hudson, called the Highlands, had an abundance of partridges, heath hens, and gray squirrels upon them, especially on the western side of the river. I had one day got over the river and among those hills for an afternoon's hunting. I had not been long there when, going along by the side of a steep mountain, I saw and shot a squirrel, but only badly wounding it. It fell from the tree just before me, upon a flat part of the rock, which projected from the side of the mountain, and was about twenty feet wide, and perhaps two or three rods long, as steep as the ordinary roof of a house. The lower edge, or what might be denominated the eaves, hung over a frightful precipice, eighty or a hundred feet perpendicular. My game, as I said before, fell upon this rock, and was scrambling off across it. I laid down my gun, and gave it chase. When I had got about halfway across this rock, and nearly up with the squirrel, being so intent upon overtaking it that I did not observe the danger I was in, I slipped and fell upon my side and slid directly down the rock, towards the precipice, until my feet were within a foot or two of the brink. There happened, providentially, to be a small savin, or red cedar bush, about the size of a man's wrist at the root, which had grown out of a crevice in the rock, but had fallen down yet hung by a single root, not larger than a pipe-stem. 
This tree, as it lay, reached almost to the lower edge of the rock. When I had got to the top end of it, and was in full motion directly for the edge of the rock, I instinctively caught hold of the tree, which immediately stopped my way. But when I looked up and saw by what a slender hold I depended, I owned that I felt affrighted. However, by using great caution and bearing with as little weight on the tree as possible, I got up to the upper part of the rock, where it was more level. When I had got upon my feet again, I made off, thankful for whole bones, though not with an entire whole skin. I could not think of the risk I then ran from my hide, without my feet involuntarily moving, even at this late hour of my life. In the first part of the month of November, I was sent down to the river about five miles with fifteen men to cut wood for our winter's use. Our duty was to cut the wood of proper lengths for the fire and then carry it on our backs to the shore, from whence it was carried to the garrison in Bateau by those who had remained at home. We continued at this business till Christmas, when we were ordered to the garrison. I sent off our tents, etc., by the boats, and, on Christmas Day, we set off ourselves by land. It was a violently cold, windy, snow-stormy day, and we had to travel eight or ten miles round about to get home, with the wind directly in our faces. It began to snow before daylight, and we started out about eight o'clock in the morning. Before we reached home, the snow had fallen eighteen inches deep, and not a single track but those we made ourselves. I froze my right ear considerably, but otherwise we all arrived safely at camp although I was very unwell for several days after. Afflictions always attended the poor soldiers. As soon as the storm had ceased, we removed into our new barracks, one half of a regiment of artillerists and a regiment of invalids, having removed into them before us. And now, having provided our wood for the winter, built our barracks, stowed ourselves away snugly in them, and winter having handsomely set in, it will, of course, bring our seventh campaign to a close. End of chapter 8